Hello, I'm Maz. And I'm Eloise. And welcome to the finale episode of season one. As you've probably noticed, there's two of us today. We just thought it'd be nice to round off the season together with a joint episode. I also wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for joining us this far. I'm actually going to be taking a career break to go travelling, so you won't be seeing me on season two, but you're going to be left in the more than capable hands of Maz and our soon-to-be-new co-host, Ashley. (laughs) In today's episode, we'll be interviewing our colleague here at Milk & Honey, Lewis Oakley. Lewis is a client director, but he's also one of the leading bisexual advocates in the UK, with his work in the LGBTQ plus space, changing attitudes around what it means to be a bisexual man. Lewis appears regularly across radio, TV and podcasts, making sure bisexuality is included in national discussions. We'll be covering Lewis's PR career as well as his activism, so we're going to be speaking about how he balances his personal and professional life. We are very excited for this episode, so let's just get into it. Woohoo! <laughs> hey guys, thanks for joining another episode of Untick the Box. We've actually got a special final episode to round off this season. We're both hosting together. Yeah, I'm here as well. <laughs> and as you can tell, we're really new to this. <laughs> um, We've only done, what, like nine episodes and we're still... <laughs> no, but it really changes the dynamic to be hosting together when we've only been the host before. Yeah, uh, on your own. It before. does. It does because you only think about what I'm saying. So bear with us. There'll probably be technical difficulties, but it's fine. Um, but thank you for having followed us along this journey so far. And we've got a special guest today who's actually one of our colleagues, Lewis Oakley, but he's also a bisexual activist. And we're very excited to hear about his career so far. So yeah, Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've been clawing on the door trying to get into this podcast for ages. (laughs) I think you're the hardest media to pitch to. (laughs) No, honestly, it's great to have you. So thank you. Shall we get started? Let's this is jump a, in. Let's jump in to a bit of childhood. So All can, right. you, can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and your school life or your university life and how that might have shaped you? Ooh, okay. So I grew up in a town called Walsall. Well, I always kind of say I grew up in a town called Walsall, but also in a, in a little village town called Cozy, because basically I'd spend the weekdays with my parents, but then on the weekends I would go to my grandparents in Cozy, which was literally like, a little oh. Disney film there, like literally, like I just so value the time I had with my grandparents. Like we would go out and do fun things, and I just really enjoyed it. So I've like, I don't know, my heart is maybe in the in the cozy place, more than the <laughs> place. So I had a good family, to be honest. Like I really enjoyed growing up. I had lots of cousins, um, and so we're all still like quite close. Mm. Um, and schooling-wise, I just went to the local school. There was no real thought about it. I didn't go to boarding school or anything fancy. It's always, there's a school down there. <laughs> <laughs> go see what you can do. Um, so I feel like, to be fair, like, growing up on, like... So I grew up on a council estate. My mum was got pregnant at 19, so I'm, like... Really? You know, I'm what they've got on, like, condom packet. Um, joking. Um, but, no, so, like, yeah, grew up on a council estate, and then we moved when I was eight. Um, went to local school and then I went to uni and uh, so I went to Middlesex Uni which was in London which was kind of my ticket out of the Midlands and like yeah. let's explore city life and see what that's like <laughs> and that was amazing I mean yeah. I really changed I think when I got to London and just was like oh my god I'm out of my little bubble and yeah. people are wild and <laughs> 
what's going on. Um, and I think, yeah, it's weird. So I, so I mix race, so part Jamaican. And I think growing up in the Midlands as well, it's actually really weird coming to London where diversity is such like a talking topic and people are trying to like teach on it and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Whereas for me, I'm like, that stuff was all just natural because yeah. like everyone in my family is a different skin color. Yeah. Um, but then also where we grew up in the Midlands, like everyone was a different race. Like mm. at school, it wasn't like I think it is for most people where it's like they grew up in an all white school and there was maybe one person of color. Like mm. there were probably less white people than anything else in, in our schools. And everyone was like Muslim and Sikh and Hindu and Jehovah's Witness. And th- th- so I actually feel like I grew up with like a lot of diversity to the point where you just don't really think of it. Yeah. So it's really weird to then like, come to London where people just wouldn't stop talking about it. I was like, is this an issue? And then you kind of realize, well, not everyone grew up in this yeah. like diverse little bubble that you did. And mm-hmm. um, so that was quite interesting to come here and be like, why are you guys always talking about this? <laughs> um, because I just, I just didn't get it. Cause I was just from just a town was where even, it was fine. Was that even back then or are you talking more so like now or even when you moved here? Yeah, even when I moved here, I remember Pete, you know, there were the ways I probably described myself and people were like, oh my God, I can't believe you've used that yeah. terminology. And it's like, is that wrong? Is that why is a it's white funny. person telling me how to talk about myself? It's funny you say that. I had that as well. A white person correcting me on how I described my mum, mm-hmm. who was mixed race, yeah. but I used the term half caste, which is obviously That's what I a complete no go. Yeah. yeah, and but it's interesting that it had to. It was a white person educating me yeah. on how to describe my mum. Yeah, but my mum used to describe herself as that. But then so did my mum. Yeah, so and I think so it was like, well, I don't understand. She, I learned it from someone. I think, but this is where it varies per country, right? Yeah. Because you'll have, so if you go down in South Africa, they mm. still use the term coloured, right. which we would never use here. So yeah. there is that element of, in some places, they have different words mm. that are, and I guess it depends on the culture of the people that you're with, what they accept, I suppose, and what they what they find offensive you kind of need to abide by the situation you're in and it's all about respecting cultures the way you are, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a bit of, I don't know if that answered your question about my <laughs> else I didn't cover in my childhood. Well, you, you could, just out of interest, when did you move to London? Just so so I was 19, I think. So I think it was 2011. When you started uni? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe 2011 when I moved. Yeah. Just, it was before the Olympics. I was definitely here for the Olympics. Well, touching on... So you grew up in the Midlands. You said it was super diverse. That element didn't really um, kind of impact you. Mm. But I know you said you grew up in a social, uh, a social, sorry, a, a council estate. How did the socioeconomic background factor in, or did it even? I don't know. So I like, I, you know, you look back and you think like, I had such a happy childhood, and then mm. your parents like tell you things like I had no idea that there was like in the flat that we lived in like I thought it was great and apparently when they moved in yeah. it was a really nice like block of flats to live in because it was full of old people I do remember Mrs Pope and all these old <laughs> women that used to make a fuss of me blah blah but they all started to die and then like the block of flats changed and I don't know things like um, oh you know, when you were about five years old, there was a police raid because a prostitute had been being kept, like, downstairs, like, in wow. a room, and she jumped out the window naked and had to go to the local shop for help, and, like, Jeez. the police were here interviewing everyone, and all all, the, all these things, that the stories that come out later, I'm like, oh, 
I think my mom's like, we just had to get out of there. It was such a bad area. Like, we were just like saving like crazy to get you out of there. So we were like, we can't raise you here. And I was like, what? I had the best time. <laughs> but I, and I, remember, I do remember one memory I had is that there used to be a storage shed downstairs for each of the flats. And all my old toys were in there. And that, I remember that got robbed and like all those toys were gone. And then like a few weeks later, we saw like um, some kids play with all my toys. <laughs> And my mom, like, you know, mixed race Jamaican, just like the door <laughs> just like screaming at everyone. I was like, hey, this mom's so mad, but oh, there's my toys. And like, just like, grabbing these toys, like, bragging the back of these people. Um, so you look back, you're like, oh, it wasn't all roses, was it? But um, so, you know, that I, I never, I've never felt poor. Um, even like, you think about when I came to London and like, um, like pennies to your name, or even my first job in PR, it was like, pennies how on earth did I pay for anything yeah but I've never really felt poor I've always kind of felt like no like um my other half always say to me like literally why are you like the most positive person because you just you don't and I think that there is I swear there was a study done there where it was something like I'm making up these stats now but it was around about something like 85% of your personality is already predetermined so obviously mm. if someone you love dies you're going to be sad but you bounce back to your kind of like positive yeah. place mm. whereas if you're kind of always a bit sad uh something mm. sad happens to you it's like it's going to take you longer to bounce back so i just think luckily to do it i'm on the happier end of like i always tend to see the bright side mm. in the end um and i never I, I i never really thought about class or yeah. um socioeconomic background and i guess growing up like everyone kind of had the same so it didn't really make yeah. sense and then coming to london I just think I was a bit blase about it anyway, because there were people that were like, you know, oh, the estate in, in the village we're from. And I was like, oh, cool, you're from a village? Like, just wouldn't yeah. even think about it. Yeah. I find it odd. I remember once, and I think I was in second year of uni, and I, we were all sat around a table having a drink, and someone said something about going to private school, and then someone else. And I was like, can I just ask a question? How many people here went to private school? And everyone but me raised their hands, and I was really? like, oh, that's weird. Like, what, what happens at private school? Like, um, did so, you not sort of, like, notice that? Like, were there no... No. You didn't even think, oh, well, I'm a little bit... Like, differentiating factors where you think, like, oh, they're definitely from a private school and just, like, their mannerisms. But that no, just went over just your head. never. it just never occurred to me. Mm. It just never really... Occur- I was just, these are, these are people and... Probably more, I, when I got to uni in that first year of halls, it was more people, where were people from? Yeah. So my best friend was from Wales, but there's a guy from um, Newcastle, there's a guy from Liverpool, and it's like, oh, he's from Liverpool, blah, blah, blah. And there was more like, where in the UK are they from? But kind of like, what backgrounds are they from? Or, or I just never even really noticed it. I wonder whether it depends which type of uni you went to, because I didn't go to a Russell Group uni, so there probably wasn't that many private school kids there, you know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't go to a Russell Group uni, um, and I found that people around me were from private schools. Oh, really? Yeah, like, very apparently, so. That's so interesting. Um, I mean, I will say, like, I am always usually in my own little bubble, <laughs> I just don't really notice things. Yeah, so. to be fair, I might just not be I'm over-observing, <laughs> Yeah, see, I'm not observant. I've realised I walk past the same sign a hundred times, and I'm like, that looks nice. And yeah. someone who I'm with like, it's literally been here since you've moved in. I'm like, oh, okay, man. Same. <laughs> but, 
Um, yeah. But you were, <laughs> you were saying that you had your first PR job like relatively early. What made you want to be in PR and did you always know that you wanted to be? Well, I always knew I wanted to do something in media, mm -hmm. but I wasn't exactly sure what, did you study what at media were. So <laughs> when I was in sixth form and I said to the head of sixth form, she's like, what do you want to do? I was like, something in media, but I didn't really know what in media. She was like, aha, there's a course, <laughs> it's called Advertising, PR and Media at <laughs> Sixth University. Let's put you in for that. Um, so I went and did that, but um, just before I started uni, my auntie runs a PR agency, which was then in London. She says moved to Manchester, but um, so I went into work experience there and kind of got a bit of a feel for what that was like. Um, and then did my whole course and left uni like with my degree, like woohoo! Like off to interviews where I probably found out I had no experience and yeah. no one wanted me. So then I did an internship with Golin. Mm. And they did this thing, it's called Bright Young Things, I think it's three or four months paid, which is always important, yeah. um, where you could go in and get experience, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I, I basically, I, I'm not sure if I meant to say this, but I'll say it anyway, but I, um, <laughs> I applied for the Taylor Bennett Foundation twice, got rejected twice, <laughs> but was told they loved me and that their consolation was like what we'll do is we'll put you on the email list for the jobs so that you can kind of like get the because they get like a couple of jobs yeah, yeah. Um, that, that are kind of given to them first and on that was my first job so I applied and I got in and it was a broadcast PR agency and I absolutely loved doing broadcast PR I've worked for two broadcast PR agencies and it was just so my vibe like we were mm. on the phones all day chatting with producers like literally I could get people on certain stations that I won't mention just by calling up and being like, oh, go and do it for me. And they're like, oh, but this story's rubbish. I'm like, oh, I'll just put them on before <laughs> this time. And they're like, okay, fine, only for you. Leave me alone. Like, <laughs> and it was like, this is crazy. Like I'm getting stuff on national TV just because people know me. This is crazy. Um, and then I kind of got out of it because it was so weird. I thought that broadcast PR was dying because I was like, look, who, like, it's all about you know, social media and digital, and mm. like no one watches television anymore, better get out of this now. And then Brexit happened, and it just, I think it gave it all a resurgence, and now we have like so many more radio and TV, and it's doing really well. But I think, um, no, I think that my path to Milton Honey, where I am now, um, it was great. I, I don't think I've really answered your question. How did I get into PR? I kind of knew I wanted to do something in media yeah. and PR yeah, kind yeah, of came did. along and I really just kind of enjoyed the dynamics of what the job actually entails. I think so many people when they're thinking about a job think about the glory or the money or mm. the, you know, the title and it's like I actually think you need to think day to day. What are you doing day to day? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I quite like what you do day to day in PR. I think a lot of people stumble on PR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you know about it in school? Because I didn't. No. <laughs> no, not until like the very last moment. I'd already applied to do something else at uni and then yeah. withdrew my application and then did PR because someone told me about it. I think I stumbled across it on LinkedIn jobs, looking mm. for stuff. When I was considering doing a placement year at uni, uh, yeah, within uni, in the end I didn't, but same way was looking through LinkedIn jobs. I was like, Strategic communications. I like talking. <laughs> you know what I think the future is going to be? And I'm actually like, as much as I'm quite like, 
like I don't want tech to go too far. Like I will never have a chip in my brain to access the internet. <laughs> but I do quite like the idea that the AI for kids in the future it will track what they're good at and then it will suggest the jobs. Because I do think there's this whole bridge between people don't know about certain jobs. Whereas if you've got like a bit of an AI that knows what you're capable of and knows what things you enjoy, then maybe it can suggest jobs you've never heard of that you'd be more suited for. Probably, I was going to say, does that not exist with BuzzFeed quizzes? No, I'm joking. <laughs> 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 no, it could be. <laughs> so I guess, what's the most favourite part of your job then? Oh, well, it's... We can name different things. It's, um, that's quite interesting because my job changes, obviously, yeah. at every level mm. from exec to manager to director. I think there's always going to be a whole, like, getting coverage. Yeah. Like, getting coverage is so... When you get it. Yeah, when you get it, I mean, you get national coverage. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Um, so there is that kind of, like, oh, I did that. I yeah. got that on there. Um, and so that's great. I love the people. Like, it's a very people atmosphere. Is, yeah. uh, what I love now, I think, most of all, because I was very daunted coming in, and you have bosses and managers sometimes that are like, oh, my God, they're intimidating, and I'm terrified, and I'm crap, and... You know, I should just not, not have come into work and I'm a fraud. But actually, like, now that I've moved up, that I get to kind of, like, work with, you know, younger people, like, execs and managers, and kind of, like, build them up and kind of be be the person I would have wanted in those roles. Because I think maybe I kind of thought that the higher you went up, the more brutal you had to be. It's actually, you do. Like, you can, like, lean into your talents and your personality and, like, there is a way to say things to people with a sense of humour that still says it. Yeah. That is like, come on, and you don't, like, I don't want anyone to not want to come into work or anyone to be feeling bad. And obviously you have to draw a line there with, like, but you could do want to be doing a crap job. Yeah. <laughs> so there is that balance. But I quite enjoy, like, that of the job now, of kind of, like, you know, building people up and teaching mm-hmm. them and, and talking to them on the same level, like, not talking to them like, well, I am a director, you are an exec, yeah. you will do as I say. Yeah. So what do you think? I, yeah, I agree with that. And don't you think that you learn a lot by teaching others? Because yeah. it's suddenly like, oh, I'm explaining something. I know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> And also, like, the evolution, like, things are different from when I started. Like, I would be on the phones all day, every day. We would, like, we'd do the nationals in the morning, and then this is broadcast PR days, and then me and the guy next to me, like, I'd start at the top of the regionals, he'd start at the bottom, and we'd just call every station until we met in the middle. And it was just a day of calls. Um, people pick up and actually chat to you. Yeah. It's yeah, like, such a bizarre Whereas now, it's really changed. Like, the, the, the journalists don't pick up the phones. The journalists aren't there. Sometimes the PRs aren't even there. I actually <laughs> went for a coffee with a journalist recently. She's like, I just cannot get my young junior reporters to pick up the phone. They just yeah. email. It's like, well, you know, like, this is just how it's changing. And we'll probably be pitching via interpretive dance over TikTok soon. <laughs> but kind of like, that's the thing. That's going yeah. wrong. <laughs> you don't, you, you know, the more you move up, the more you've got to realise the game is changing. The pandemic really changed things. Like, journalists aren't always in the office anymore. Like, you've mm. got to find new ways of, I think Twitter DMs is still quite a good one. Like, yeah. yeah. And it's just, so you're being taught as well. Like, you know, your executives are around you. be like, you know what? That doesn't work anymore. Do you want me to waste three hours on the phone and speak to three people, all of which tell me to send an email? Or yeah, should I do this? Literally. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, it's like, oh, I found this new tool. Like, and rather than send an hour changing the name at the top and individually emailing, I can send it all out at once and blah, blah, blah. And I can tailor this, yeah, I can tailor yeah. that. And it's like, well, let's try all these new things because that's, you know, 
the execs are going to be the ones on the ground that kind of figure it out because they want to get the coverage too. Um, so yeah, I think those are those are my favourite elements of the job. Nice. And do you have any like career highlights or proudest moments? Ooh. Well, I got thirty under thirty just in the nick of time. <laughs> so that was a great good one. Great, great tip. Um, so that was that was a nice thing to like, Oh, an industry recognition. That's quite nice. Yes. Um, I would say my probably proudest moment is PR, and I need to go back and find the story because I've told it so many times. I don't remember who the client was, but I was working for an agency where we kind of like um, we didn't have retained clients. We just had people in to do their campaigns and get them coverage and then move on to the next one. So you're literally pitching a story for a day and then you'd move on to the next one. Oh. So it was quite a convey belt. Anyway, we had this one story in and it was about how to do that, the Heimlich maneuver yeah, yeah. Um, on yourself. So if you were oh. doing it, um, you know, if you were choking and no one was around, how could you do it on yourself? Mm. Um, and I managed to get it in the Daily Mail and I was like, boop, good times. <laughs> And then, I think that must have been on like a Thursday, Friday, and then we came in on the Monday, and like the the, the company, whoever it was, had been mentioned again in the Daily Mail, and I read, and it was basically someone read the article, choked him in the right. weekend, did it on themselves, so I saved a life. Oh my god! <laughs> but so, Amazing! I love how accurately you remembered that story. <laughs> Thank you. When you need to like send yourself to bed, well, this is a good thing that I did. Yeah, <laughs> saved exactly. a life. I so kind of want to know how you do it now. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You have to say what. Um, and has there been a mentor that's particularly impacted your life, like whether professionally or personally? Um, I mean, I guess she's not officially my mentor, but our boss here at Queen Bee, Kirsty, like, has been a bit of an inspiration for me. First of all. She found me at a really odd time, so I um, basically was leaving London and moving to Manchester, and mm. somehow I ended up doing an interview here, and they offered me a job, and I was like, I've already really agreed to go to Manchester, like, coming in was a bit of a, a last-minute worry about, like, I wasn't making the right choice, um, and she said something like, okay, no, we're gutted, but, you know, if you get there and you think, geez, call me. And I went to Manchester, I had a really awful time, <laughs> and I slid into her DMs and was like, I believe you said the panic word was jeez. <laughs> um, and within 30 minutes, I had a job offer in London, a two grand pay rise, and I saw what you want. Um, so she kind of saved me, because I was in a really bad predicament. But also, I just think, if I'm being honest, the company that she's built here, you know, how we inspire people, how we put people first, it's it's exactly what I wanted and it's why I stayed so long. Mm. So definitely, yeah, I would say, I, I don't think she thinks she's my mentor. But <laughs> no, I, I hear that. <laughs> um, not to go on to something so negative, but, um, are there any challenges within this industry, do you think? And if so, how do you combat them? Um, challenges? I think everything's changing, as we kind of just said. So I think, like, getting the coverage is a bit harder. Getting hold of journalists is harder. Um, so it's just about finding new and dynamic ways. But I do think journalists know how much they need us. So it is kind of potatoes, potatoes. Obviously, at the moment of recording, like, the economic forecast for the UK is not looking too great. So that's yeah. something that we all have to kind of watch and manage. And it's yeah. I think it's been a couple of rickety years for everyone, right? Like, we literally, like, mm. had a pandemic. And, and then, you know, then we've the cost of living and, and a recession. And it's like, oh, my God, it's 
such a slog sometimes. Um, but you know, you keep going, you keep being positive. And I think that this is where innovation and good ideas come from, right? When you're really squeezed mm. and it's like, right guys, let's um, let's figure this out. So yeah, probably those, I guess. Mm. And we've spoken a little bit about your PR journey, but as I mentioned kind of in the intro, you do call yourself a bisexual activist. Mm. Could you explain what that actually means? Yeah, so I'm bisexual, if you haven't <laughs> read about it already. Um, and I, you know, struggled as everyone does with coming out um, and then, you know, coming to terms with being bisexual and being a bisexual man and how rare that is and then kind of walking with confidence with it and then kind of looking around and being like, who are all these people that they're going to hold bisexual stand? And for me, it all started, as most things do, um, with a drunken argument in the bar. <laughs> where I love that. I, was, I think it was at someone's birthday party. So at a birthday party, you meet friends of friends. And one of the friends of friends was talking to me and I was saying, you know, oh, I'm bisexual. I've just, I've just started dating this girl, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, bisexual you're gayer than me. And I went, just exploded with just like, you know when you just kind of like have been thinking about all these injustices? Yeah. I'm like, hold on, yeah. why is it like this? Why is it like that? And I just basically told him what I thought of him and what, what I thought of, you know, that opinion. And the weirdest thing was, rather than get mad, because I was quite insulting, he turned around and was like, that was really good. I think people need to hear that. Like, maybe you should write that and like, you know, he basically said, I've got this website. I would love for you to write up what you just said to me. Um, no, so no. I wrote did it up. He, did he approach you like in a malicious way? No, we were just talking. It was just when I got to the bisexual But you stuff. were in a place where you'd had all these thoughts and you were yeah, making so I was like, like re- Yeah, so I had, you know, for instance, I, so I had been dating a guy for two and a half years. Yeah. And all the time saying I'm bisexual, I'm bisexual, my fr- there were some friends, who are not friends now, mm-hmm. that were part of my life then. And then I became single, and I was dating, and so I was dating men and women, and a lot of gay friends had issues with it. And I remember one instance where I'd met this girl in Soho, in a club, we were kissing outside, and one of my gay friends had taken a picture of us kissing and put it on the group chat, it was like, a gay being seduced in Soho, how disgusting. And all the comments underneath were just like, taking the mick out of me, and this silly little boy, when's he going to realise he's really gay? And all that kind of stuff. And I was like, if I said to you guys, you silly little gays, like, and wait until you realise you're straight, like, there would be hell to pay. So what is with this inconsistency? So it's already charged from, and that's just one, mm-hmm. one, but there were so many other things. Like, I'd, you know, go to the sexual health clinic and I'd be like, you know, I've had sex with men and women and they'd be like, what? And they'd, like, give me a weird look and be like, so... Are you bisexual? I'm like, this is a sexual opening. How could that be something that you're shocked by? And then you would ask, like, well, I'm bisexual. Like, are there any specific health things? Like, have you got your leaflets? And they would, like, be like, have any gay leaflets? And stuff. I'm not gay. Um, and so, you know, mm. it was all those kind of things that were getting on my nerves. Um, and then this one guy that approached me in the bar, like, he just had it all. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, that, look, that was really good. Um, <laughs> so write it up for my website. So I wrote it up for his website. And then um, it was really odd. Then the Metro and Huffington Post must have read it somewhere. I'm like, that was really good. Can you write something for us? So I wrote two pieces then for, for them because they asked. And then something really weird happened, which was that I started getting loads of emails from like bi men all around the world that were like, oh my God, I've never even 
like read anything from another bi man like in wow. national media that's crazy and, and also this thing you were talking about like I never thought about it that way because I have no other bi men to talk to mm. and then I kind of felt like oh my god like it was kind of like a, well I need to keep doing this then and so you know that was six years ago now and so I've done loads of articles I have done a couple of arguments with Piers Morgan so <laughs> um, but just really you know held people's feet to the fire of saying like look we're bisexuals the statistics show that we're pretty much there's just as many bisexuals as there are gay and lesbians so this idea that if you look at the funding brits aren't stupid enough to release this but in america you can look at the funding that they all get and basically bisexuals get about one percent of overall funding and that's been consistent for like the past like 50 years mm. and so it's like well you're underfunding this and we're like half of the movement and then you kind of see that, well, there are a load of gay guys in charge of LGBT movements, not all, um, that don't think bisexuality is a thing. So, well, why are we going to invest in that? When um, you say funding, in what? What do you mean? So, uh, research. So, yeah. there's, there's no research that's ever looked at, is a bisexual man more or less likely to wear a condom with a man or a woman? Right, Whereas, yeah, like, that, you know, yeah. there's so much research on you know, gay men and do they prefer like men with like hairy chests or not? It's like, mm. how is that more research than like vital yeah, sexual think, yeah. stuff? Um, you know, I think that there's a lot to do with isolation for, for mm. bi people in particular. Like, they don't always have other bi people in their lives. Yeah. And so they don't really have anyone to talk about some of the specific issues. And of the research we do have, bisexuals basically come out worse in every way we measure success from pay to employment to mental health to substance abuse to relationships one of the things i'm really like um talking about a lot at the moment is if you're gay and you come out as gay um that doesn't make you less attractive to gay men whereas if you're bi and you come out as bi that makes you a lot less attractive to women so the yeah. stats are something around there's a couple of i think there's three studies and they basically put it around only 19 percent of women would date a bi guy right yeah um, so as one bi guy put it to me before, well, if I come out as bi, aren't I really just coming out as gay by default? Because there's going to be so few women that want to date me mm. anyway. Then to find out I'm bi, it's going to be like three people. Mm. Um, and so then you have this thing where bi people are like the most positive in the LGBT. So it's like, well, I'm not going to hurt my dating chances. And then one of the things is, so I started an advice column called Ask My Dad. Um, because I was getting so many emails, I would be trying to reply to them one at a time. Um, and I, in the end, I was like, you know what, I just need to pitch this as a column because I'm getting so many of the same questions. And the mm. most, the biggest question I get, the most frequent, is like guys being like, how do I tell my wife I'm bi? Mm -hmm. Because they're so, they've basically hidden their bisexuality because they thought no one would like them. And they've done all the things they thought they should do. They've got married, they've had kids, they've got a mortgage. And they've woken up one day being like, I don't know if my wife loves me or the straight character I'm playing. Yeah. And I actually need to know before I die that she can accept me for who I am because, you know, what he was worried about 10 years ago of like, oh, I've got to keep this secret. Like now it doesn't seem such a big thing. And then they really struggle with that. It's like, why is this happening to so many people that are yeah. emailing me? Um, so those are just I, those are just a flavor of some of the issues of the of the things that we deal with. There are so many more that I won't bore you all with. But that's what I've kind of been working on. And, and you know, making sure that LGBT groups earn that name. So I have taken issue before with the whole LGBT movement, and I call it the LGBT movement because, you know, 
If you want to add more people to it, look after the four you started with is one of the things I will say, because you're not. Um, and I've also written about, like, would bisexuals be better off outside of the LGBT? Because it just seems to me, and whenever I speak to people about it, some people are like, oh, well, I just the LGBT was looking after everything. And, and it's fine. It's like, well, if people think that we're being looked after and we're not, that's an issue, yeah. right? And we need to, if this, so one of the things, you know, because I've got a bit of a profile now, I will get invited to events and awards and people come up to me from LGBT groups and charities and be like, oh, blah, 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 and we do this and we do that. And I'm like, okay, so how does the the support you offer to gay men differ from the support you offer to bi men? And like nine times out of 10, it's just a blank set of like, what? Mm. But they're not even thinking about it. Mm. It's like the bisexuality is so different. A, a bisexual man's issues are so different from a trans woman's issues, so different from a bi woman's issues. Like they're all unique things. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just don't understand why, I understand this whole let's stand together, power in numbers and all support each other, but if we then lose the specific issues that are impacting by people, mm. I don't really see the point. If it's just like, oh, we're talking about like discrimination, it's like, yeah, okay, but the discrimination a gay man receives is different than discrimination um, a binary receives. A, a, a gay man is not often going to feel guilty because his partner's receiving homophobic abuse. I felt guilty because I've dated women who were straight and then they've gotten like, oh, you're dating a bi guy, yeah. oh, you, you're going to catch HIV, he's going to cheat on you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, like, I feel like you're dating me and now you become a bit of a target. Whereas, you, you know, so every, there are so many nuances that are just not focused on, which is what I've been kind of doing. So that's, that's what my activism is, I guess. <laughs> No, I mean, I think that's so important and it probably, it comes into the wider issue of not grouping people together like that. And it comes, I guess, if you're thinking on an ethnicity level, mm. you know, people have issues with BAME yeah. uh, for that same reason. You know, what you can't group every person of colour and pretend that mm. they deal with the same mm -hmm. situation the same way that you can't group everyone in the LGBT community yeah. and expect them to deal with the same issues. Um, just out of curiosity, has anyone, like these people that approach you and they ask just to be like involved or for you to write things with them, do they ever ask for your actual consultation, like we've got this issue, like I need your advice rather than like aimless? In what, do you like, know what who, I mean? Who, like, like, you know, you said that people approach you at events. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they ask for your consultation or did they, they just ask? Um, not really my concept. There was so more reached out once in the really early days yeah. and I, they, oh, they, okay, tell the story. they reached out and they had seen what I was doing. They asked if I would wear their, like do a picture wearing their, some people are buy t-shirts that mm. they were doing at the time. And I was like, well, what are you doing for bisexual mm. people? Um, and that mm. relationship quickly went sour. Yeah. <laughs> because I was like, well, you can't just throw your branding on me. Yeah. So I'm really funny about partnering with anyone. Like, I will do it, but I also think I'm more effective as an outsider throwing mud inwards than yeah. wearing the t-shirts. It's rainbow washing. You've written an article on that, haven't you, in terms of we've got greenwashing, rainbow washing. I mean, it's oh yeah, really, there's yeah. so much rainbow washing. I mean, one of the things that really irritates me, especially working in PR and in comms in general, is like pride season where it's like, we'll just throw a rainbow oh, on everything yeah. and just say, we like inclusivity. Yeah. So that's not doing anything. And like the money that's being spent, you could really make an impact. Why does every brand have to throw their their support behind every, like the whole rainbow? Why can't you just say, you know what, this year we're focusing on bisexual men. 
Because yeah. that's, and that's the only way that pride is going to continue is if people go niche. Yeah, if brands true. say, you know what, we feel like this specific area of the LGBT has been underlooked, so we're going to, over the next three years, that's going to be our focus. And, yeah. and then we're going to really own the conversation there. Yeah. And you could do some real good mm-hmm. rather than just, mm-hmm. oh, we, just, you know, I'm sick of like, oh, we support bisexuals. We painted a, a bench purple. <laughs> what did that do? <laughs> It's so true. I mean, you've kind of touched on it, but what do you think, as our industry, for example, but I guess other industries, what do you think they can do to make it more inclusive, specifically to bisexual people? Well, I think, yeah, so I think part of it is stop grouping everything together and mm. the whole queer and the whole LGBT thing. Like, people, and I think that even in the, uh, in the LGBT community, people are just not resonating with this anymore because you're trying to be so general and trying to like yeah. hit so many people. It just doesn't really mean anything to me. Like I am, you know, a, a well-known LGBT activist, I guess. Do I connect with any of the LGBT content that brands are putting out? No, it's just not relevant. I'm not gonna wear a rainbow. Like I'm just not. Like those are not my colours. Make a nice bisexual t-shirt in black and white. I wear that. Um, <laughs> but I think it's about being hyper-focused. It's about saying, you know what, we're gonna look at this one specific area because that's interesting. So ooh, what? What's happening with bi men? What's happening with bi women? That's interesting. Um yeah, I, I, and I think obviously having the consultation, because I think there are so sometimes where people just will run in and not understand and mess it up. And I say that I think one of the things I could probably say is I've gotten into trouble in the past because I've written articles for national newspapers or LGBT titles and a gay or a straight person has edited it and changed like the headline to make it more appealing and then I've gotten backlash for it. It's like, no, but I would never have phrased it that way because I know. And so I think sometimes when you don't have people that are bisexual working on a bi campaign or stuff, you will fall into Mm -hmm. problems, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's why you need more diversity at the decision-making tables everywhere in terms of, you know, I mean, that's very easy to say because it's very broad, but in terms of just having differences in opinion to make sure that, you know, things that resonate. And that's exciting, right? That's how trends are started. This is what PR should be doing. We play it so safe now. It's just like, oh, we, you know, we generally love everyone and we generally like diversity and inclusion. And it's so true. Here's a general flag. Yeah, we've, added, <laughs> yeah. we've added more colours to it this year, so we appeal to even more people. It's like, I don't connect with this. Mm-hmm. I would rather you focus on one of those colours in a very specific area with something interesting. And it doesn't even always have to be about me. If it were about lesbians, but it was hyper-focused, it was an issue that we'd never heard of before. And it was like, oh my God, you're going to change this over five years? How? And you know what I mean? I just think that that having actual impact rather than just general love everyone is, is I just think the general love everyone thing's had its day now. I think what's really key there as well is that potentially because a lot of the injustices are really, I think more people are talking about them. There's this idea of we need to fix this quickly, but by mm-hmm. doing that, you're not fixing them properly, if that makes sense, because yeah you're trying to do group, well, as we've said, group too many things at once and then it just ends up a bit wishy-washy. And then you're for legislation, for example, that takes years, you're trying to kind of get stuff in that does it really help yeah. anyone? <laughs> I mean, obviously there has been progress. I'm not pretending that there hasn't, but 
there's probably as you said if they were like right look this is our long-term plan for the next 10 years we're going to do this 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 that's probably going to be more effective i would love if there's any brands listening to this (laughs) i would just love a big buy survey that's done once a year because it's really hard for me as a buy search activist to get good stats because things are looked at once and they're not looked at again like one of the things that was not studied really well which i would love like good statistics on was about how many gay men had identified as bisexual on the way out of the closet. So there's this whole thing of like people say, um, oh, bisexuality is a phase. And there are a lot of gay men, this drives me absolutely mad, that will come up to me and be like, oh, I was bisexual like before and like I came out as gay. Um, and I have a bit of an issue with it. Now, you have to be very careful because you mm-hmm. don't want to judge anyone's coming out journey. Yeah. Like you have to have your coming out journey that was that was the way it was, and no one should really have to come out, and that's it. But by a gay guy coming out as bi and then coming out as gay, it adds to the stigma. Everyone that knows you now thinks that bisexuality is a phase. And they did this one study on it, it was really limited, where they found I think it was something like 60% of gay men had identified as bisexual on the way out of the closet, and something mad like 85% of them knew that they weren't bi at the time, but they were just using the label as a transition yeah, phase. Yeah. And it's like, well, to test the waters of being like, well, I still kind of like girls. Yeah. Is, that, is that okay? Yeah. Is, is everyone cool with that? Okay, well, now I'm gay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that's what they were doing. That has unintended consequences for bisexual men, right? Yeah. Like that now I have to deal with the, the stigma that everyone thinks that this is phase and I'll eventually realize I'm gay mm. after three kids. Um, but there's also this idea of then the gay men that do that and get to what they see as a finish line think that that's what all bi people are doing and then they enforce the stigma they created and it's like hold on here like I, let's be fair we don't want to judge people's coming out journey I'm sorry you had to you know come out and do that and you did it in the way you had to but there has been a consequence here and I wrote and it was really funny I wrote an article about um, Ollie Locke when he did that he came out as bi oh, yeah. and came out as gay very publicly and he basically became something people would beat me with, as in like, people would be like, oh, you're bi, like Ollie Locke was. Um, and that's happened quite a lot with celebrities, where they'll come out as bi and they come out as gay, and a lot of bi people that don't have a lot of role models will look up to and be like, oh my god, this celebrity's come out as bi, that's great. And then, you know, a year later when they come out as gay, it's like, oh, you've gone from being an inspiration to being something people are going to use as proof that I'm not real. Mm. So, you know, stuff like that that's really interesting, I want, I want more statistics on it. So if there is, to go back to my point, if there is um, a brand that's listening, like just a big buy survey once a year where we can look into all of these specific issues, I'll give you all the questions for free. Like, <laughs> there is so much data that we could compile and then we can make really informed choices on what would actually help buy people and what would improve their lives, which is the way I think it should be done. I mean, I'm yeah. a data geek anyway. And I just, you know, maybe oversimplify is like, okay, well, these are the issues. Here are some solutions. Let's give those a try. See where we are next year. Why not? Yeah. Out of interest, I mean, obviously, you're a bi man, so you can't speak to bi women necessarily. But have you just generally, through the work that you've been doing, noticed a difference in stigma of that phase that you described of people saying that women are also, bi women also go through a phase? Is that, would you say it's more of a stereotype towards bi men or more of a stereotype towards bi women? Or do you think it's across 
Um, so there's this whole, oh, I forget what the term is now, you put, you're catching me up, but it's basically this idea, it's a, the misogynistic idea of basically people are defined by their attractions towards men. So if a man is attracted to men and women, he's really gay. If a woman is attracted to men and women, she's really straight, but she's just having fun and being drunk mm. and titillating. Interesting. Um, but then there are a lot of bi women that will say, you know, lesbians are really horrible to me. They don't like that I play both sides, or they just generally don't understand how mm. I can find men um, sexually attractive. But as much as like a phase, I don't really know. I think bisexuality, bisexuality will always have this issue to a certain extent because we are a visual species. So mm. eight years ago when I was with my ex-boyfriend and we were holding hands walking down the street, people would look at us and be like, there's two gay guys. Yeah. Yeah. They would think there's a gay guy and a bi guy. And now when I'm stressed out walking down the street with my three kids and my other half who's female, they're like, look at that stressed out straight man. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously they don't think that. But you know what I mean? They don't think he's bi. So visually to the world, it always seems like we've like made a choice and it was a phase. It's like, no, I, I have three kids and, you know, my other half is female, but, you know, I still find men attractive. Like, my hormones didn't die, just like mm. you as a straight man. Like, it's, you know, you're a straight married man. Does that mean you don't see other women you find attractive? Yeah. Like, your hormones don't die. So it's like, yeah, you see attractive people, you're just not acting on it. Or maybe you are, and that's fine too. I think, yeah, we're, we're visual species, but also very binary, aren't we? Mm. In terms of, like, it's always this or that. It's People struggle to realise that there's a wider spectrum across a lot of subjects. Yeah. And that's part of the issue too, which, again, raising awareness around there is, is the only way to really kind of break that. Yeah, mold. I find bisexuality, I think, really irritates people it just seems to hit a nerve so i do a podcast called bisexual brunch probably my podcast <laughs> um where we really get into these things and what we've kind of realized is that bisexuality like it just hits a nerve with people because people are like, well why are you talking about sexuality so much you're in a relationship it's like because it needs to be talked about because that's the problem it's bisexual people go into a relationship and then they've got other things going on they've got the school run they don't talk about it mm. um the way that you know gay and straight people it's just like well that's established it's fine we don't have this issue yeah um, so it tends to irritate people and when we talk about the ins and outs of a relationship and you know if you were talking to a straight man who's married and he was constantly talking about his attractions to other women outside of his wife that would be like weird it'd be like well why we don't expect that from you just say that you love your wife and that's it whereas like because bi people have to kind of do that to talk about their attractions it's like it's it unnerves it. Why are you doing that? Um, mm. So, and you know, we have this issue where, so both the, the two other people I co host Bisexual Brunch with, um, all three of us work in media in different iterations. And yeah. we're always pitching other stuff, like to national broadcasters and articles. And it's so weird. You get half of the media that's like, oh, bisexuality, that's an old concept. Like, that was dealt with in the 90s. We don't need to explore that. Um, and then you get some people that kind of are like, well, People don't identify that now. It's about being fluid and stuff. Like, so from either direction, people just don't really ever want to talk about bisexuality. It's like they skipped it. Um, and it's odd. You just cannot... Everything... I would say for every piece of coverage I've got on bisexuality, there are about 50 pitches that didn't land. So it is just a... Yeah. Keep, keep going, keep going, keep going. Come up with new ideas. Figure out how you can piss Piers Morgan off so that you are. <laughs> Easy task, actually. <laughs> true <laughs> um to kind of add to that i mean i guess you've spoken about what 
you kind of would hope for in terms of the bisexuality space. So, you know, more kind of nuanced campaigning and a survey and more data around it. But do you have any professional and personal goals that you would have for the future? Ooh, so I am a real goal goalie person, actually. I really <laughs> like to kind of have goals at the start of the year and then at the end of the year actually review them. And so at the end of 2022, when I was reviewing them, I was like, I have not done any of these. <laughs> but they were like 15 and I'd spread myself too fit. And, you know, I had a baby last year and I moved mm. and I got promoted. And it was like, you know what? I have had a good year. There's been some really great things that have happened a child. But um, as far as what I set out to do, I haven't really achieved it. So this year, I just set two goals. One is to learn to drive and be comfortable. Well, my goal is to be a confident driver by the end of the year. Nice. Um, how far away are you from, how many lessons do you have? Um, loads. I don't know how many, but my loads. test is a, I, well, I've been doing it for six months mm. and I've got my test in March. Okay. So no one passes the first time though, so I'm kind of uh, like, I did. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> but I failed my theory first time. So there's, I think you're oh, either okay. or, you either pass your theory first time or you pass your driving test first oh, time. I passed my theory first time, is that bad over? I don't, do you know what? No, I've also just made a generalization there because there's some people who pass first time with both things. Well, we'll see what happens. And then the second one is kind of a bit more, like, I want to build out a bit more of what I'm doing. I would love to maybe do my own podcast at some point because mm. I would like to do something around either positivity because I think you, like, a lot of people say to me, like, you're really enthusiastic, you always see the bright side of things, like, and that's really great. And I look out at the media and what's going on in the world, it's just doom and gloom constantly. Yeah. I would actually love to do a weekly podcast or something that's, you know, not because outside, I am so passionate about bisexuality, but I do have other interests as well. Yeah. It's like, I would love to maybe do a weekly show where I kind of sum up all the positive things that have really happened that week, like, you know, nuclear fusion's been perfected or whatever it is and oh, just know, generally just, not yeah, just, yeah, just I general, think that's like nice. a general thing where people can tune in once a week and be like you know what the world isn't so yeah. bad because there is this element of that the world is not great i think that as a as a species to stay alive and part of evolution is to look on the bad side like what you know yeah. what wolf is coming to eat our crops and stuff and come to the cave and kill us <laughs> then you know there, there's always going to be that element of the human psyche that looks at the bad because it's a safeguarding message but we, I hope, live in one of the best times to be alive. Like, you know, mm -hmm. and there's so much stuff we take for granted. One of the things that always fascinates me is when um, someone said to me before, you realise, like, plumbers have saved more lives than doctors. So what do you mean? It's like, because the sewage, like, you, people used to get sick from it. So having mm -hmm. pipes and sewage, like, things you take completely for granted have saved so many lives. Like, why do you think the population is booming? Because people don't die as much anymore. Yeah. Um, and so... Kind of looking on the positive side, I think, is really important. So I want to do either something that's positive or something in the space of men. Because I do think with men, and especially being a bi man, some of the times I'm like, is it just bi men or is it like all men? Do men not know how to be anymore? And what, what forum do we really have to talk about how to be good men and, you know, what, what matters to us? And how do we, you know... Emotions and, yeah. Well, suicide is the biggest cause of, of male death yeah, between yeah. the age of 29 and 50. Mm -hmm. It's like, what? Yeah. Suicide is the biggest killer. That's insane. What's yeah. going on? And I have a cat in so the world, true. and maybe this is being bisexual, but I don't really have any male role models. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really look out and I'm like, oh, I want to be like here. You know what? Actually, in a weird way, I, like, there are people on Instagram that are men that I like 
dress really well. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm inspired to dress better and stuff. But I really like... But not in terms of the personality. Not in terms of yeah. personality and drive, but especially as a dad now, because I'm mm. obviously overanalyzing everything now because I'm raising little people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we put so much effort into talking about, you know, what we want their childhood to be like and what we want them to remember from their childhood and that kind of stuff. So I would love to kind of, you know, talk to other men and dads and kind of like have those discussions where I feel like other men can be like, oh, I'm a bit inspired by that. And I feel like I have some belonging and some reason. I think, you know, me being a bisexual man, which, you know, was looked down on is still looked down on i think actually leading the charge made a little bit and be like no i'm a modern man and this is okay and yeah. this doesn't make me any less of a man that i happen to have attractions to more than one gender but actually it could be something so that's kind of what i'm thinking about and then from a um a professional point of view in case our boss is this thing i'm not planning to leave or go anywhere <laughs> um, i i actually think more as i kind of said for me Personally, I really like the company I'm working for. Um, I like the vibe and the energy here. And for me, it's more about making sure that day-to-day is enjoyable. If I'm gonna work five days a week, for my my goal is to have work be where it can be stress-free. Yeah. And to just really enjoy every day, enjoy the people I'm working with, and you know, and not always take those challenges so seriously, because sometimes it can feel, oh my god, I've got a hundred emails and everyone's mad and ah, ah, ah. Um, <laughs> Just kind of take a step back and be like, look, I'm not going to remember this in a week's time. Yeah. It's fine. Let's take one thing at a time. Let's work through it. And just enjoy the day-to-day of life. And I think that so many people have goals like, I want to achieve this, I want to achieve that. But I think more people should think about what they want their day-to-days to be like. Rather than, you know, if you say, oh, I want to win a medal for running a marathon, like, that's fine. But if you have completely neglected all your friends and your family and yeah. everything, you know, to do it, it's that's not a great whole life so I kind of like I of course I have my little goals of driving and me do my own show by the end of the year but I with work especially I want that day-to-day to be enjoyable and to really like the people I'm working with and like the accounts I'm working on and the same with my kids as well I have three kids it's crazy I couldn't tell you some of the mad stories that go on having two well, kids we've had them. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you guys do. Um, where do you think you where do you think you are in like your work-life balance journey like do you think you've nailed it do you think you've got a way to go or... um i think i i think i'm doing quite well if i yeah. am on it i think i'm doing quite well but i think that now um the kids are dictating it a bit more so i you know i kind of have that hybrid model where i work from home some days mm-hmm. and i'm in the office some days but now actually i think it's getting a bit trickier to work from home because the kids are so demanding like i've been on on calls with clients and had a two-year-old come and bring me their potty mm. and I'm just holding it off camera mm-hmm. and like muting myself calling for my behalf to come get this potty and it's like yeah. you know what this is getting a bit distracting mm-hmm. now so I probably will be more in the office this year yeah mm-hmm. um, but then I like that balance and my other half is really great with like you know looking after the kids and taking them out for most of the day um and you know, like not having to commute home, so you get that time with them. I I pretty much do bath time every day. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I feel like I'm really a big part of my kids' lives because you know, there's so many bad things that came out of that pandemic. But one of the good things for me is that the hybrid model has allowed me to be with my kids a lot more, be part of their lives. So if I was if we if we weren't doing that, I'd be in the office five days a week. Yeah an hour commute in, an hour commute out, yeah. getting home just before bed. And, you know, I didn't really see my dad growing up, to be mm, honest. I spent yeah. the weekends with my grandparents. Yeah. 
and he would leave, he would be out before I woke up in the morning and he would get back about six. I used to go to bed at like seven or eight. Yeah. So it was a really short time. You know, he comes in tired and wants to put the news on and not yeah. really. So there's never, I didn't really have that with my dad. So like for me, it's really important to have this time with my kids, but then at the so same true, time actually. to, yeah. to really like, you know, also be good at work. So, but the thing is, you know, I feel like people tell you when you're doing crap. So you know, <laughs> everyone at work seems to be generally happy with me. My other half is generally happy with me. My kids seem to like me. So mm. hopefully I'm doing okay, but it's all about maintaining, right? I mean, yeah. I've been awake since 2.30 this morning because my two-year-old decided it was a great time for a party. <laughs> that is so interesting. I think we can, we will see like failures of life, but dads are being more hands-on. Yeah. Because, like for me and anyone in my life that has like a father figure, they they barely saw them because they mm. were always at work. And it was like that classic, yeah. even though my mum did work, she'd always like she came home make earlier. an effort yeah. to come home early, pick me up from school. She would have the flexible work, whereas my dad would just be like coming home at like 10, leaving at seven, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I think even like those days where the kids are, you know, I am more likely with my work to be working from home. So if I, if my kids were to be sick at school in the future, like it would be me that would go and pick them up and bring mm. them home and then I just work from home. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's so nice because I do think... It's balancing the gender um, divide on that a bit because there's always been those studies in terms of women, once they're of child birthing age, mm. is that the right <laughs> that they sometimes have had to miss out on um, salary increases or stuff because they are the ones that have to work the shorter hours or have kind of that flexible time, which wasn't such an accepted thing before. Now I think with the hybrid working, it can be shared. It can be shared a yeah. lot better. There must be studies on it, though. Yeah, don't have any hands on now. For sure. Oh yeah, I think. And the thing is, as well, like it's not. I feel like in the past, I'm not like you know, I wasn't in the past, so I can't <laughs> judge them. But what it seems like to me was that it was just expected, right? You get married, you have kids, and you have jobs, and that's it. And there was an expectation you you must have children, or you're odd and weird. Whereas I don't think we have that now. So we had kids because I really wanted to have kids mm. and I half did. Um, and I think that's the thing now. It's like, I think the people that have kids generally really want them, mm. not just kind of feel like, well, that's just what you do. Yeah. And so that makes you want to be, so I think more people that are parents by and large really want them and want to be there and want to do it. Because I tell you right now, lack of sleep I get and some of the madness that goes on like, these people that tell me, like, oh, I'm not sure if I want kids. Like, maybe. I'm like, no, no, no this, isn't a, yeah, this is not to. a maybe. This is a commitment. This is a, this is a, I really desperately want them and I would feel incomplete as a person if I don't have them. Because that's what you're going to yeah. need when you are being kicked awake at 2.30 and you've got work tomorrow you've got to be competent and you've got to mm. do a job and you're not going to sleep now. But also not knocking on dads, right? They were brought up in that environment where, especially a few generations where the dad or father figure was told that they had to earn the most money so they naturally did have to work the longer hours and stuff like that i think now again women are having longer careers you know equal careers even but it's kind of being it's it's, it's evolved in that way as well things i think sometimes people look at the past as though it's a conspiracy theory i'm like the past wasn't a conspiracy theory people did things of their time yeah because that was the way it just kind of worked and that was what the vibe was at the time. It wasn't necessarily to make dads work harder or to not give women a chance, although those were the unintended consequences. But people were just trying to figure it out as they got on and now we're in this world where we're saying, well, actually, why do we need to do that? Why Mm. why can't it be the dads do this? I mean, 
I will say this, it is expensive to have kids. So like my yeah. other half is not working at the moment because she would need to earn at least three grand after tax to put the kids in nursery, which yeah. is ridiculous. So, yeah. and you know, we speak to a lot of parents at like play groups and parks that we go to and they're just, oh yeah, until the kids are in school, we're, we're literally just racking up debt, yeah. but we're just hoping to pay it off afterwards. So Jeez. I think that, that, you know, as much as we've just had this positive conversation around, oh, it's all different now, yeah. dads and moms, but actually, I don't know how people do it unless they're ultra rich um, or, you know, one of the people in the relationship, usually the, the woman, just is going to have to take that hit. And that's what we're having to do. It's like she's out of work for yeah. a while. She'll probably work weekends and stuff. But with the money, like, it's, it is tough to raise kids. Mm. And that's really sad that that's happened. It shouldn't be that way. No. Um, but, you know, keep hustling, keep going. And also, I think there's this element as well as, like, in a couple of years when they're at school, it will be a lot easier financially. Yeah. And I am actually one of those people that's like, it's changed me in the fact that I'm like, I don't want to be, like, king of the world now and earn the most money. I, like, want to earn enough money that we don't have to worry about it. It's like, you know, we can go on holiday and we can keep the house and keep the food and we're okay. But I would not want to like add a hundred grand a year to my salary if it meant like being away all the time and daddy's not there. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? So yeah. I think that's probably changed me in that sense. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I wanted to go back to, you were talking about your goals and, and I just wondered whether you had any advice for people in terms of, is there anything you do to try and keep that positive attitude or in terms of um, kind of making the most of the day to day, or is that something you're still figuring out? <laughs> um, no, I think you should have goals. Um, so I think at the start of every year, you should be setting like what you want to do, and mm. not it shouldn't be. Uh, one of my biggest advice is you cannot do everything, right? Yeah. There are people like I want to like have children. I want to be like the best in my career. I want to have this gym bod, and I want to like have loads of friends. It's like okay, we well, already ran out of too many hours. Like well, yeah. there are enough hours for that. You you you're not going to sleep. So you do have to kind of say, like, what am I going to fail at? That's important. Mm. Like, I have not been to the gym a year, and I will not go to the gym until the kids are probably in school. Yeah. And that's just something that I'm like, look, there is not enough time to do that, but also I don't have the energy for it. Mm-hmm. So the gym, I'm sorry, Muscly Lewis is going to have to wait. <laughs> um, you know, also with friends, it's like, you know, I actually probably don't make as much effort with people that I kind of generally get on with. It's more my core friends that I will see, mm-hmm. because I don't have that amount of time to kind of keep some of those other friendships going. It's not that I don't like them or anything, and if they invite me to their birthdays, so I'll definitely try and go, but I think the social life takes a bit of a hit, but yeah. we but are where we are. you have to come, like, you have to make peace with the fact that that is going to happen? Yeah. You, or, like, it will come back in a later date, not yeah. that it's never going to be that for me, but it's, like, looking at all the things you want and, like, making little sacrifices and being okay with it. Yeah, you have to kind of choose what you're going to fail at. Yeah, it's like you've got to prioritise as well. Um, And kind of like, I've only got so much effort and time in a year. Mm. So this is like, this is the cool thing. And I think as well, if you can, it's about um, kind of moving the stick in the mud and then it's like, okay, well, that sits there. So for instance, you know, I'm director of a PR agency. It's like, right, I don't really need to go looking for another job now I like that that goes from like storming I guess to now maintaining I just want to do a good job mm. so I now have managed to find a partner mm. right that's good I don't need to date anymore I just need to maintain a relationship you know I want to be a dad okay well I've got children now right so I don't need to make mm. any more children like it's about maintaining so 
kind of figure out in your life, okay, where do I kind of want to generally be with that? Where do I want to be with that? So, you know, for me this year, it's like, okay, well, career's going well, kids are going well, relationships going well. Um, but the stuff I do outside of work, like the bisexual stuff and the, the media stuff, actually, if I could get to maybe the point where I have my own show and then I can set the agenda a bit more, that would be good. And then that'd be about maintaining it. And you yeah. know, with driving, it's like, you know, getting kids on five tubes across London is just not doable. So if I can drive, then that really helps us. So it's about maybe choosing two or three. I wouldn't say have all the three goals for the year, but have those kind of things. And look at your life in the terms of, A, what am I going to fail at this year? Like, what am I like, tapping out, I'm not going to be able to do that. And what are the three things where it's like, actually, if I, if I move the gauge on that, if I storm it this year, then that goes into the maintain box. It's like, okay, I've achieved it, now I have to just maintain it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the same amount of effort. Um, but I think that that's really important. And then obviously just not losing track of your goals. So making yeah. sure that you are holding yourself accountable. Yeah. Like at mm-hmm. the end of every month, when we here do our monthly reports, I generally will have a little look through like what I've done that month from my own personal standing of like what, what I've set out to do and like wherever I failed this month. Okay, well, you did, you know, you did two driving lessons a week, every week, but you didn't watch any of those online videos about roundabouts and stuff that you were meant to do. So yeah. how are you going to do that next month? Okay, well, generally if I get the kids up in the morning and then give them their breakfast, they're quiet for like 20 minutes. So I can watch a video there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so trying to figure it out, always be kind of perfecting it. And I think just having the basics, right? I think like making sure that you're eating well. So I always think like plan three breakfasts that you love that are also healthy. Do the same with lunches, do the same with dinners, like just three. And it's like, look, those are always my backups. If I want to do something wilder, that's great. But actually I've got, so now I know I'm eating healthy. And and, you know, and then you kind of work, like I have really bad dry skin. So I'm going to sit down for two hours and really google what products i should be using i've never had dry skin on my face like for two years since i just sat down for two hours figured out what my skin type was figured out mm. what products i should be using and figured out like what the daily routine should be so there are things you can do like that it's like you kind of got the basics you know people should also dress really nice as well i think so figuring <laughs> out what your colors are what you look good in like there are little things you can do where it's like you know what like i've generally got a good thing going here yeah. And these are, the, these are the areas I need to just work on. But I find as soon as you storm something, maintaining it is really easy. I think that's really, and you've mentioned the rule of three quite a lot there. So maybe that's key. It's like whether you're doing it on a long-term level, so like three goals for the year or two, well, I guess, rule of three. <laughs> but then even the, the day, I know for me, sometimes I'll go through or day or week, it's like, right, these are the three, like, non-negotiables that I have to get done. Mm. And any other things, and it's just how you prioritise that. And then if you get those things done, even if other bits of your to-do list have kind of gotten away from you, at least you're like, yeah, but I got the three things I really need to get done. And then you don't feel that guilt, which I think some people can feel when you're like, oh, my to-do list, I didn't really get as much that I needed to get done or whatever. Everyone's at different stages, I think, because I'm definitely someone that's way too hard on myself, and I know I am, and I will really kick myself when I don't do what I said I was going to do, or I'll overload my to-do lists for the day. Yeah, Um, yeah. And actually, sometimes (laughs) I'm like, you know what? Like, like someone said to me the other day, like, you are like a dad of three children, you have a full-time job, and you do all this bicep on the side. Like, why are you annoyed because you didn't do X, Y, and Z? And I was like, oh, like... I guess, but I still need to get done. So shut yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it's sometimes it is. If you're, I think some people aren't motivated enough, but then I think sometimes people can be too hard on themselves. So yeah. it's about realizing your personality as well, and realizing you have a tendency to do that, or you have a tendency to basically 
Mm. Say you're going to write article and then spend two hours on Instagram. It's like, yeah. come on. Um, and I think the world we live in is hard. I really think that one of the biggest problems our generation really struggles with now is like, what does success look like? Because I think generations past, it was so much more easier. I remember having conversations with my grandparents when I was growing up. They were like, well, you, you, know, you just got a job down the street. And if you didn't like that job, you got, you got a job down the other street. And that was it. <laughs> and that was fine. And I look back on like how they used to live with a bit of like romanticism, I guess. I'm sure they had problems, but it's like, oh, it was so simple. Everyone yeah. just knew people in the local area. You all just got a job. There was no ego and everything. Um, and I feel like maybe growing up in the 90s, where it was all about glamour and men wore mm. suits and I drive Ferraris and I'm a Fortune 500 and blah, blah, blah. And it's very aspirational. Whereas now we're in this culture now where it's like, people are like, oh, no, I'm just who I am and mm. this is it. And, you know, so it's a, it's a very weird one to kind of know what success looks like. I think that's the hardest thing, right? So I'd hate to get to 50 or 60 and be like, oh, my God. I wasted my life. Like, yeah. you know, forget my children. I should have been a Fortune 500. And, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I hope I don't feel that way. So you, you're kind of like guessing how you're going to feel in years to come. Because mm. I, I did have this one moment. I'll say this. Um, I, when I moved to London, I moved to London unintentionally with one of my best friends from home. So we went to the same school. We know each other since we're like 14. And we both moved to London. And this was years later. This was about seven years after being in London. Like, he was working on the West End and achieved his dream of being like a performer. He was singing and dancing in Motown on the West End. And I was doing really well with my buy stuff. And I got invited to this red carpet event for this theatre show. Mm. And we sat down and my friend was like, do you know who that is next year? And he was like, no. And he was like, he went strictly come dancing last year. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't watch that. I didn't care. But it was like full of celebrities. And then at the end, we kind of were like on this balcony overlooking London being given free champagne. I was like... I think we've made it. I think <laughs> if our like fourteen-year-old selves from yeah. school could see us now, they'd be like, "Oh my god, it all works out okay." Mm. And so I really definitely want that feeling when I'm like fifty. I want like my fifty-year-old to be like, if my thirty-one-year-old self could see me now, yeah. he'd be like, yeah. "My god, it all works out. It all like everything's okay." Yeah. Um, and so that's probably what I want. I always like to just generally think about how my younger self would be proud of me. Like, in, <laughs> yeah. like little moments. It's a good thing to do. When yeah. I'm, like, really happy or, like, on holiday and, like, you know, happy with my job and blah, 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 I'm like, my younger self would be so proud of me right now. Mm. Just, like, little things. It doesn't have to be, like, huge momentous no. things. I think that is so important. My dad's very good at reminding me of that. So, I don't know, I'll go off on something. And he's like, you know, like, you've actually achieved a lot and you're yeah. not 30 yet. I'm like, to be fair, like, most things I've set my mind to, I've done. Yeah. Like, yeah. like why, why am I upset about myself? Like, I'm like, girl, you're killing it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think everyone needs to remember that. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that's such a good tip. Like think if think about would your 14 year old self be proud of you. Yeah. That's a good judge, right? Yeah. Because the, there's this whole thing like you shouldn't be comparing yourself to others, you should be comparing yourself to you from yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I true. think thirteen year old me would think I was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I always think that I'm like, well, if she was stood next to me right now, she'd be like, Wow. <laughs> I think my thirteen year old self would be like, How have you got so many piercings? <laughs> How did your parents let you get away with that? <laughs> no, I love that. All right, well, um, kind of leading on to the end of the podcast, of all the episode, I mean, but um, what would you like your legacy to be? I think we've touched on it a little bit, but say, okay, you're at your 50-year-old self. What 
at the moment do you think you'd want your legacy to be? Oh, it's such a good question, and I have thought about this because we only have one life to live, and mm. we are already so lucky. We are human beings; we're not rabbits. We're human beings. We're born in this decade and century where we've got the technology. It's like it's a good time to be alive. Really, it is. It's like you've got all the opportunities. So, what are you going to do with it? You're going to squander it. So, I don't know. Like, what will my legacy be? I would like to do more in the broadcast space, as I say, like when I worked at Broadcast PR, I loved it, and I'd love to, you know, go on people's shows as a bisexual activist and all that kind of stuff, and I love the podcast I do, so I would love to maybe, I would love to do a show that really kind of changed people's minds and like maybe helped nudge people more towards seeing the world a bit more positively, like yeah. I could do that, and that's, it's like, you know, I think... I definitely want to be a good dad and I want I want my kids to say I love my childhood. Like that's really important yeah. to me that I love my childhood and also that they are decent human beings and I didn't cuddle them too much that they now can't function in the world without me. Yeah. It's like that kind of Goldilocks thing with the kids of like they loved it, but also they were happy to go out into the world and do their own thing. Yeah. I definitely want strangely a house. Like buying property is really important for me because I just like I want a home that my kids remember growing up in, it's ours. Mm. I was able to decorate because I love interior design. Mm. And then, you know, you've got that like collateral that the kids can have if anything happens to yeah. you. It's like, look, no matter what happens to me, this has paid off, you've got it, it's yours. And I know that there'll always be a roof over your head, even mm. if I don't make it. Mm. Um, so those are kind of like personal things that I kind of want to have in the bag. Um, but yeah, I think maybe doing something where I can kind of, you know, be in the same way. I mean, with the buy stuff, I'm really happy with what I've achieved there. And I'm going to keep doing that. So hopefully being remembered as kind of like someone that really nudged the, the dial on bisexuality. But I think I also have more to give where I want to kind of like spread a bit of positivity and enthusiasm. Be like, guys, come on, like, let's be happy. Like, yes, there's problems in the world, but I have a feeling we're going to fix them because mm. we always have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you do start that podcast, I'll be listening. It sounds great. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. What were your first two listeners? Two listeners are Oh, well, look, um, it's been so great to speak to you. It's been thank so you. great for, having, for, for being here talking to you guys, and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, have a good rest of your day, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Oh, my God, what a lovely episode. And it was so nice to be able to record one with you before I leave. Yeah, it was so good. We honestly could have chat for hours and hours. Yeah, literally. Uh, and honestly, thanks so much to everyone if you followed us up until now. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to stay in the loop with everything that Lewis gets up to, we'll leave his socials in the description. And if you're already waiting uh, with bated breath for season two, then follow Milk and Honey's social channels for updates. See, See you, you next time. time.